Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again, everyone. Neil Almond. Hello. And back once again, following on from his season one, episode one appearance, Mr. Lloyd Williams-Jones. Mike, how are we doing? And together, we're going to try and answer the question, how do you solve a problem like feedback? But first, Lloyd, what's you reading for? Well, um, I am currently um, knee-deep in um, Shannon Doherty's new book. It is a lovely little book. Um, if you are looking for something to supplement um, your curriculum, uh, and there's a, there's a whole host and of, of really, really well thought out, well-crafted games, tasks, ideas that deepen mathematical conceptual understanding. And what, you know, what, what, what this isn't is a gimmicky pickup sort of, here's a load of different random things. This is actually really carefully constructed and well-researched book that is steeped in um, mathematical concepts. And it really comes through when you read it. And I know potentially, that, you know, some, some others in that series could, could potentially be of, of a different vein, but this really is a very, very smart book. And uh, I think it really, really uh, stands up. And that's largely to do with Shannon's really, really excellent subject knowledge. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking to dive into some of the fantastic ideas that are coming out of that already with my my little maths group uh, um, this week with some fractions work, some of the stuff on there as well. Um, yeah, fantastic. Really, really highly recommend that. So Chris, what are you reading for? I promised myself I wouldn't say this at some point, but it, it has to be said. I'm reading Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics for the second time. Um, it's it's fantastic. It's worth the buying purely for the discussion of narrative. Um, I found the structures of arithmetic discussion really illuminating. Yeah, sorry, Kieran, I know that embarrasses you, but it's an excellent book and I highly recommend it to anyone who's listening. So, uh, Neil, what are you reading for? I've also read um, Shannon's book, um, which is fantastic. I think the way she's managed to weave kind of all that theory that kind of we talk about quite often, but she's put it in such an accessible book, um, you know, that the TA could pick it up and what they're actually doing is, you know, really good solid mathematics is, you know, fantastic. Um, so I've had that on the side, but the main thing that I've kind of been reading this week has been, um, and it links quite nicely to what we're going to be talking about later on, um, uh, academic paper, testing, quizzing, boost classroom learning, a systematic and meta-analytic review. And it's a really interesting paper because it looks at retrieval practice, which everything, you know, we all know that Kate Jones is doing a wonderful job, uh, um, you know, signposting everyone towards um, retrieval practice. Um, but we'd be fools to say that, you know, the evidence base is rock solid. It's certainly most of it's come from um, lab-based um, uh, experiments, but this review is kind of looked at, uh, it's a meta-analysis, so it's looked at all the different ways that it's been used um, in the classroom. So this is all reviewed completely just with students in a classroom during that kind of first phase of teaching. And there are some real absolute nuggets of information in there about, um, first of all, it looks at why it might be effective. And there's some real kind of nice juicy bits about why um, it may not be all down to the retrieval effect and there might be other things in place so that's really quite interesting because a big part of retrieval practice that i've kind of seen has really put forward the idea of you know bjork's um theory of disuse this idea of the retrieval effect in this one while it does go out and say you know we can't say for certain it does seem to imply that there are other things um to play with it there as well um yeah well worth it there's a lovely little table that just says these are the questions that we try to answer and then here's the answer for it, going through all that review. So it's a lovely little paper. I could talk about it for a long time, but I'm not going to right now because it's not the main thing we're here to talk about. Just to add in there, thinking about Shannon's book that's been mentioned, you just know we're all going to be playing battle frames with our kids as oh, like the next chance we get. Yeah, I've heard lots of good things. Mine arrives in two days' time, and the first thing I'm going to do is try and read from cover to cover. And I remember when I when I interviewed Shannon you know I was immediately sold on how important this book could be and it seems to be shaping up that way you mentioned that a paper a while ago Neil and I need to get round to reading it because it sounds 
not just really well presented, but really thoroughly researched as well. So yeah, it, it's, it seems like, you know, one that could be really important, you know, over the next, you know, five, 10 years. And um, yes, that's a really interesting one. I, I was going to go for something that falls into the reading around category again, because I'm technically not reading because I'm listening to it, but it's one of the great courses on Audible. And it's, uh, I think it's about 22 hours on the, the age of the Vikings, you know, so Scandinavia and Greenland and sort of different parts of the Northern Hemisphere, you know, between, say, the 9th and 11th centuries. And I think that's quite common in schools as a, as a, as a, so a topic that gets taught at some point, probably during Key Stays too. So if anyone needs to develop their Viking or their Scandinavian subject knowledge, I should say, then, you know, 100%, you know, I think even if you're not signed up for Audible, you get one free audiobook at the start, you know, make it that one because you get 22 hours of gold. And it's, it, it's you know, it's one of those ones you pause and make notes. Does that come off the back of your uh, obsession with watching the Vikings, Kieran? <laughs> yeah, in part. Um, you know, the Viking culture is a big part of Irish culture, you know, because we didn't have the Romans, but we did have a lot of Viking stuff. So in Armagh, where I am, or where I'm from, um, there is a big sort of, um, there's a big influence in sort of some of the historical sites and things. I'm, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but we used to go there on school trips and things. And you would you would see this mesh of the different cultures, you know, because the stories I was told whenever I was young, they're not much different from the stories that, um, that, that you know, that Scandinavians would be told, you know, about the, about the past. And it's just this way that pagan communities and, and societies, you know, even though they were really, really different, sort of tried to express the world in which they existed, you know, pre-Christianity and pre what, say 10th century. And yeah, so yeah, it's really, yeah. So I think I've always had an interest and I remember doing a project in school on the Vikings, but yeah, the show has definitely rekindled that, uh, that interest big time. I was just going to quickly say, Kieran, um, are you happy? You don't mind me having plugged your book? I can recommend something else if uh, you prefer. No, no. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Chris. Um, I didn't want to jump in in case anyone else was going to continue with the, or in case you were going to continue, but I, you know, I, and, and I was on mute. So, but I really appreciate that. Thank you. The focus of, the, of this episode is going to be feedback. And I think it's important for a number of reasons, you know, partly because of its utility and the potential it has in the primary classroom, but also because of the need to understand precisely what it is, because if we don't, we can end up with some pretty big um, side effects that uh, you know are to be avoided. But I think before we start, I think we need to define feedback. Anil, I'm going to throw it to you first. How would you define feedback? I would define feedback as anything that the teacher does, be it on a, a whole class level, a kind of small group level, or a one-to-one -one level where the adult attempts to improve the pupil and not necessarily improve the work of the pupil. That's my thinking right now. Short and concise. Nice. Straight up. That's, that's the, it feels to me like the Dylan William. That is definitely, yeah, that is Dylan yeah. William. I definitely kind of, as soon as I started to see it through that lens of improving the pupil and not as uh, improving a piece of work, um, yeah, that was a real kind of light bulb moment for me in terms of what I was doing in the classroom and how it affected and changed what I was doing to hopefully make feedback far more effective. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to just uh, piggyback on Neil a little bit there. I think, um, you know, Dylan William is, he really is spot on when he speaks about feedback and, and what he's written around feedback. And I think, you know, what he says around feedback causes thinking. You know, and that for me in, in, in children, feedback must cause thinking. You know, it's, it's cognitive. I'll pick a little, I'll, I'll probably expand a little bit more later on that. But um, yeah, in, in its essence, it's, it's sort of more, reduce it down to its simplest sort of uh, definition. I think it's that it causes thinking in the learner. The only thing I think I'd add to that potentially um, is that when we see uh, when you learn about systems that are chaotic and you see that how they relate to related to feedback loops there's a fantastic 
element of this in that you realize, as I say, because of the relationship with chaos theory, you realize that feedback ends up with relatively unpredictable outcomes so that minute changes can lead to these incredibly dramatic outcomes. Whether that's the case with feedback, um, I don't know, but it's certainly the case that whatever kind of input we have in that system of back and forth communication between a pupil and a teacher, it is hard to know. And I would imagine hard to measure exactly what the outcome of it is. It's, I think it's worth noting that um, I could be wrong about this, could be slightly out of date, but a lot of the research that goes, that has been done on feedback has suggested that it's quite a, a tough nut to crack, that it's just as easy to do it badly as it is to do it well. And I don't mean, when I say badly, I don't mean no, no effects, but literally to have a negative effect on uh, performance as defined by the research. So I think um, this is why I'm interested in kind of thinking about it in a chaos theory side of things, this idea of small changes when it comes to feedback leading to unpredictable outcomes. I think that's something um, we should probably keep in mind as teachers that it's quite possible that we don't necessarily do it well. And it's hard to know exactly how to do it well. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I think it's one of those things that it sounds very, I think people can make it sound very simple. You find out what someone doesn't know and then you just give them feedback on what they've done wrong. But actually, it's far more complex doing it well. And it's not as straightforward as that whatsoever at all when you look down to it. And absolutely, as Chris said, I think it was uh, Kluger and Denise, I think, who yeah. did the meta-analysis a while back now. Um, kind of found out that providing feedback can, as you say, you know, not just have a null effect, but can sometimes have regressive effects on performance as well, which was definitely quite interesting. I think Harry Fletcher Wood mentioned that one quite recently as well in one of his I think, blogs. Neil, it was two in every five, two in every five uh, uh, of the studies, I think it was, were negative. Two, yeah. two in five that were actually neg negative effects of feedback so, from the meta-analysis. No, I was going to say, but it's also quite interesting. Actually, if you read Kluger and Denisi, uh, the paper on feedback, um, so little of the examples that they use actually look at a classroom environment. A lot of it is done through sport or through kind of other methods, other areas where feedback has been given which is one of these things that people have extrapolated this message from and then it kind of gets out there and we you know we can't say with 100 percent certainty you know whether in the classroom environment this is applicable or not but it's quite interesting and you always have to ask yourself well, what makes the classroom so different that if it doesn't work in context a that it wouldn't work in this classroom so yeah lots of interesting discussions can be had around that particular paper so i think having having sat at our stall what does good practice or effective practice look like in the classroom with regards to feedback? I don't know, Lloyd, if you want to take that one first. Yeah. Um, again, just again, to, to pick up from you here, Kieran, in terms of workload, that is obviously tired teachers, not effective teachers. And I know Chris has talked about that this in a previous episode about how teachers become less efficient um, when they're focusing on the wrong things and feedback is important. Of course it is. And how we do that is really, really important. So I, th I think, you know, the verbal feedback is obviously, you know, um, is really, really important in helping to manage workload and helping to, 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 to lessen the load. I don't think that I, I want to say, writing off written feedback because I think there are written things that teachers can do that can have a big impact at the right time, um, you know, in the right way. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean, like I said before, writing them all a letter, um, you know, because we know that that, you know, individually writing to the child is not going to, I'm not suggesting that. Um, but the, one, again, what I'll, 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 I'm going to use William as an example here. One of the, one of the things, one of the uh, teacher, I think it's a physics, is it a physics teacher he talks about in, in, in London. I forget the name. And basically she on pieces of work hands back the work. And in the center of the table are a selection of cut up pieces of feedback that match the work, but an anonymized. And it's down then to the pupils in that situation to match 
the statements to their work and then they have to select and look and read through the feedback and match it and think, Oh yeah, that's my feedback. Um, and one of the, one of the things he, he talks about this being a good, a good thing. Um, and, and this probably I would say is, is an important element of, of feedback is that, you know, it's, it's that it's, it's, it's the cognitive versus the emotional. And he talks about, making feedback cognitive and trying to um, uh, to lengthen the process of, of emotion because there's always going to be an emotional attachment to feedback. It's, it's, it's nigh impossible to remove it completely because, well, for obvious reasons, you know, a, a child has put effort into something. So there's going to be an element of, of emotional uh, sort of connection there. But this idea of re- it's ultimate, almost remove, rem- making it further away from the emotion um, and this idea that, it anonymizes the feedback a little bit. It puts their, their cognitive sort of attention on finding which one's theirs and not actually caught up in ego involvement whereby they are then focused on what their partner got and how did their partner get on? Because and I'm sure we'll talk about this later. Peers are a massive uh, factor, I think, in the classroom on feedback have an enormous impact on that. So I think that's really pertinent. So for me, that was a nice strategy, but I sort of was thinking how else could that be maybe utilized? Perhaps it was, and I don't know the best way to do this. It's a a seed in my mind at the moment of how that could be adapted. One thing, maybe a piece of work coming back and maybe the relevant, like three questions underneath the work. Now, Again, I realize that if you were to do this individually to every child, this would be, you know, quite quite a burdensome workload. But I don't know. There's probably, maybe there's ways of working it to make it more group-led or something with children decide which question actually is best to relate to the piece of work that they've done to get them, again, to focus on the cognitive side of things, not the emotional side of things in the comparison with peers. I think the temptation when it comes to feedback thinking about what works is to start saying a list of not this and not this and not this so i think you've done well lloyd to actually point out some like really positive stuff so um if i might just add a couple of things there i think and this is something that's always been a bit of a failing of mine generally when it comes to all forms of feedback written that um spoken etc i think you need to be quite disciplined in what you do if there are three or four things that are wrong or that you want to change in a piece of writing or a bit of mathematics whatever it might be you just have to pick one you just have to live with the other three for the time being and and move on so i think being disciplined and you know saying what's what's the highest priority i think that's important um where possible i think it's a very difficult balance when it comes particularly when it comes to dealing with feedback on writing but where possible you want to give messages that are quite general i mean and that's quite a hard thing because you want to give uh, feedback on something precise, but then you want that to be a p- more broadly applicable. So, for example, if you know you want to suggest that a child's language choices or a, meta- a particular metaphor doesn't work, you might just want to say this metaphor doesn't work, reconsider. But then you want that to be you want some message with that, as Neil says, that changes the learner that allows them over the longer term to say, okay, so how do I make sure my metaphors work? What what should what should my metaphors be doing? Um, so that's um, something to bear in mind. Um, the last thing I mentioned is, ironically, that I think feedback, for obvious reasons, needs to be concise. I think for me, it's really understanding what it is that you're giving feedback and the state of knowledge that that child has. I know um, Dylan Williams says something similar. Like instead of just marking it and and you know writing a dot or a cross next to four incorrect questions and whatever it's far better to say well actually four of these are incorrect go and you know can you go back and find them and that's great if you know it's the kind of careless error that perhaps someone who's just decided to fly through it has gone through but if you're you know if you've got your child who is you know struggling to number bond to 10 still who's still kind of struggling to put um, you know a coherent sentence together because they haven't really fully comprehended what that sentence is yet giving them that kind of feedback is next to useless because they're just going to look at that and go well 
I thought it was right. So I don't actually don't know what to do now because you're not actually giving them that strategy to do. So I think knowing your learner and knowing the kind of prior knowledge that they have and why they've made that error um, is particularly important. Um, going back to what Chris said, I think that concise, um, absolutely. But I also think sometimes when you're going around, especially this, and I'm awful at this, so it's something I'm kind of the next week, well, I'm you know, back in the classroom now. It's like I really want to, uh, you know, notice and you know, really practice. It's that, all right, you've made that error, but I'm not going to sit with you just yet. I'm going to go around and see if anyone else has made that error. So instead of me spending five minutes with you and correcting you or, you know, however long it might be, and then, oh, Billy's also made that mistake. Oh, and Charlie's made that mistake and Lola's made that mistake. And I picked that up afterwards. It's far better if I kind of get that whole overview of how everyone is doing, take stock. And then instead of me spending two minutes, two minutes, two minutes, two minutes, I can go right up and down those rows. Right. Actually, you guys, you need to come and you need to come with me. Everyone else carry on working. I just need now to give some very quick um, corrective, whatever it may be for, you know, these five children. And that's, you know, far more, I think it's far more effective than kind of just, you know, quick inputs with those as individuals. But I think it's very hard to do <laughs> because I think habitually we're just so engrossed being like, right, I'm going to go to this person. No, I see you're doing something wrong. So I'm going to spend, you know, this time with you. And also you need to make sure that the you know, behavior of your class is at the point where actually everyone is on task so you can actually get around all of those children as well and it's it's a challenge i think you brought up something there about which i really liked about this idea of personalizing feedback to the it, it needs to take into account the the learner personalizing feedback in that way i think another element that's kind of links to that is the idea of you have to think of it as the second half like I think of feedback as the second half of something. I mean, it obviously almost goes without saying that it is attached to some kind of activity or task or something that you want children to do. But there are some tasks, some activities that elicit a response that allow you to give better feedback. So for example, a piece of writing that the children have been asked to do that hasn't asked them to use speech marks, and even though you know that this kind of speech punctuation is coming up, isn't gonna allow you that opportunity to feed back the thing you want them to know, if what you want them to know is how to use speech marks. So it seems like an obvious thing to say, but I think this idea of thinking about, well, what is what exactly is the task that's going to elicit this feedback, and does it provide an appropriate opportunity to give that feedback? Um, is just something to bear in mind whenever we're dealing with something like this. The, um, the, the first time I heard about, you know, that idea where you don't specify what's wrong, you just said there's an X number. I wanted to try it out straight away. It was only, it's, it's over a couple of years of refining and approached it because initially, like you said, Neil, I was asking kids who didn't necessarily understand where they'd gone wrong and was getting little success with it. But now as part of my, like Sam, my turn, your turn is a big part of my instruction, you know, a model. And then we'll, we'll have that sort of that mimicry phase. And when the boards go up, I will sometimes say to someone, okay, so if there are say four steps to the, the process that they're learning, I'll say one of the steps is wrong. You know, can you, can you spot which one it is? And then that way they think like, I'll give an example. I was working in base two, exploring base two with a group of, um, sort of secondary age pupils. And they had written for the number nine in base two, they'd written eight, zero, zero, one. And I said to them, you know, you've almost articulated, you've almost expressed this in base two, but I want you to think about my instruction. What mistake have you made? And then they instantly, you know, it was, it was online. They instantly came back with the, the one zero zero one and so it was almost making them aware that you know in the in the right moment you sort of just make them aware actually and it can be a very quick back and forth and i think that can be quite powerful you know because quite often i think i mentioned this in, in thinking deeply if we're working through something i will draw attention you know maybe by labeling sort of some of the bigger ideas 
you know, where regroup is necessary, where we need to take a kind of a law of arithmetic, you know, why we've done something. And then we can almost ask the pupils, okay, so when I model what you've just practiced, you know, so say they do the year turn and then I'm going through it. I want you to look and see where you went wrong, you know, and then piece by piece, I think, um, you know, we can help take them towards, you know, a, a more fuller understanding because then they're almost thinking about the, they're thinking about what they're doing in, in a broader sense. You know, they're not just thinking about this is the one thing I'm doing. It's a case of, okay, in all instances where I have a similar question, there are certain parts that I need to remember and I need to focus on. And so I think, yeah, that can be really important. I have a bit of a question. I'm going rogue. I'm putting it to you guys. Uh, Cause it's, 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 I think it's a good question. I think it's something that is, it causes me a lot of, a lot of thought and I'd be really interested to know where you stand on it. So feedback, you know, we say it's Neil, you said, you know, we talked about it. It's being, it's about the learner. It's about the learner doing something, changing something. Well, let's go, let's go a level deeper and think about their motivation to change and to follow what you've asked them to do. And I'm going to pick up from Peps's book, Peps McCray's book, um, and just focus in on um, uh, attribution and, and sort of how children perceive effort and why they would want to act on the feedback. Where does praise fit into this? I was listening to... Michael Childs and Emma Turner talk about this. And uh, Emma t- asked Michael about praise. And sometimes you need to just say, well done. Do you, do you agree with that? Or would you say, you know, or, or, or is, it, is it about the culture of, um, are you praising what is expected or are you appraising what is good? What are your thoughts? I think that with praise, we start to wander unintentionally perhaps into one of those areas that, I think we all learned about on initial teacher training, which was about feedback, which is this idea that if you give it a grade, then the effect of the feedback is diminished. Where any positive effect that you're possibly going to have from um, the feedback is gone. And I know it's a different thing to say, well done, or I love this, or great work. But I think there is to an extent that kids treat that in the same way as a grade. I know that if, if I, well, I can't know for sure, but I remember as a kid, if I did some work in my book and my teacher put like a gold star in there. I was done. You know, that was my interest in anything else that was written there. It's like, well, I've got the gold star, so I'm awesome. Let's leave it at that. So I, this isn't to say that praise is something that I'd entirely avoid relating to work. Um, I think there's a time and a place for it, but generally speaking, I, when it came to marking in particular, back when I used to do written marking, when it came to um, talking about children's work, I tried as an experiment to cut it out to a large extent from my interactions to be a little bit less diffusive. And I can't say I saw any issues with regards to children's motivation. I can't say that it made any differences there, but I can't say that I saw anything particularly positive grow from it either. So I, yeah, I I, I don't know where exactly I stand on the idea of praise. I think as with a lot of things, it may well be the case that unless you are praising to high heaven the most banal everyday thing that children should absolutely be doing anyway, I suspect it doesn't have the negative or positive impact that its um, detractors or those that actually love it um, would suggest. That's my guess anyway. That, it's an interesting one. It's something that I've kind of thought about not particularly deeply, but have thought about in terms of, you know, that motivational aspect with regards to marking. And again, and I think I just come back to the individual. Like I know there are just some kids that just need it. And I know if I just go in there and I just go, can you do da, 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 and not, you know, praise that effort, then actually I know I've lost them for the thing because they just think, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. Conversely, what I've just kind of thought about in terms of the changing of the learner and putting that all together is that perhaps what would make more sense would be to praise the act on the child of actually responding and doing something with a feedback that's just been given as opposed to praising them for what they've already done. So that might be quite an interesting little 
um, experiment. So in terms of going back, oh, I can notice that, you know, three of these are wrong, go and correct them. And then you kind of find them two minutes later, have they actually corrected it? Have they found them and kind of maybe praising that because that might kind of make some kind of impact in that, that act of actually looking through and changing something you know, they might associate that with, a, you know, that positive experience of, you know, getting the um, teacher praise or kind of in my, um, in my class, it's the Mr. Armand high, el uh, high elbow, because you know, you're not allowed to, uh, and those, uh, you know, Paul Hollywood uh, handshake worthy in rarity, but when they come out, you know, it's rapturous applause with, you know, because they know someone's actually, you know, worked hard to earn it. So that might be something interesting. And yeah, I think Chris made an interesting point. I've never kind of thought about whether you know whether that that praise at the beginning of what you might say acts as that kind of um, acts as uh, you know that praise element of it, and that then takes away any kind of uh, formative comment that you may add. So yeah, that'd be quite an interesting thing to to find out. I, I love that the um, the the Paul Hollywood reference. You know, I'm vaguely familiar with them. How important that is. Yeah. So I think that, that's really important because if you give out praise all the time, it's it starts to lose its currency, doesn't it? You know, absolutely. I think you can have layers of praise. I think you can have your, you know, oh, you know, well done, that was great, fantastic. But now do that. But then you know, you just have something that not intrinsic, but you know, just something, oh, do you know, oh wow, you know, it was a Mr. Armand high elbow moment, you know, wow, that's that's something. We um whenever I first moved to England. We were very much the school of being very factual in our praise, you know, so praising things that, like you said, almost Neil, things that have happened, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, thank you for the, the effort you put in. Right? That's a really bad example. But just, you know, instead of instead of just saying generalized terms, being really specific about what it is that you appreciate has happened. And I think we were, we were doing that because of the, the sort of the complex self-esteem needs of a lot of the pupils we were working with. And so by being factual, we were sort of drawing attention to things that weren't associated with the self, you know, because if you say something along the lines of good boy, then a pupil with sort of complex needs in that area may or may not um, respond how you imagine, you know, you, your intended your intended reaction would be. Whether that's, you know, absolutely the best way to do it or not is neither here nor there. That's just the, the sort of the school of thinking that I was brought through. And as a parent, I always talk to my sons about the effort they put in over everything else. You know, when when they say, oh, that, that, that homework was really easy. And I say, well, it was easy because of the time that you did X, Y, and Z and the effort you put in to learn A, B, and C, you know, because of, because of that reading practice you did, you were able to understand what was happening. And Malcolm Gladwell just happened to be listening to this today. Malcolm Gladwell was talking about why some people are successful and others aren't. And he was talking about Tim's. And like, I, I absolutely love Malcolm Gladwell's storytelling, but I think when you tell a really good story, it sometimes comes at the expense of the accuracy of the, the account, you know, and which is not, which is not a, a sort of a, a dig and because I, I love outliers. It's one of my favorite reads, but I do know that some of the edges have been rounded off for the, the lay reader. And he was saying that there is a correlation between, and I think it was a correlation of 0.9, between students' percentage of the questionnaire, this 120-question questionnaire that the Tim's participants answer, and their math scores. And he was saying that there's a massive correlation between effort and sort of outcomes in maths. And so whenever I think about Lots of, this, lots of sources, you know, like David Dadar talking about the effort that we put in and really reinforcing the need to put in effort. Whenever I'm thinking of praise, you know, to go back to your question, Lloyd, I'm, I'm thinking about, can I praise a factual, you know, an, an event that has happened, something that has happened, something that has been achieved, something that's been done, or the effort that I, I've seen that's been, that's been put in. Like I said, whether, whether or not Gladwell's 0.9 correlation is absolutely spot on i well believe that the students in japan i think it is that he references are because culturally effort and perseverance are seen as some of the most important attributes to have you know i could absolutely see that panning out if it were to if i were to go further into the sources if i can take the discussion 
on praise, praise just briefly in a slightly different direction by talking about a couple of anecdotes. Again, I know the plural of anecdote isn't data, but I'm going to go there anyway. Um, the school that I've worked in that had by far and away the best behavior of all the schools that I've worked in is the school in which it was basically forbidden across the teachers to give effusive praise for stuff that are ex expectations. So if a class line up nicely, nothing wrong with saying, yep, good lining up, that's fine. But if you describe that as wonderful, how impressed you are, no, that was a no-no. And I remember coming into that school and almost standing out a little bit because my praise just was so naturally OTT and effusive and I had to tone it down. Um, again, whether that's correlation, whether that's just coincidence, who knows, but it's something that I've borne in mind since then. The other thing to note is that thinking about um, praise, I work with a student who always took or got in the habit of taking their book whenever they'd done a good piece of work to some random teacher around the school. Sometimes it was their teacher from last year. Sometimes it was an adult that they worked with on other occasions. And over the space of a year, I effectively had to wean this child off going for praise every single time they basically did their work, that they'd done the basics. And the difference in this child's her self-efficacy or how she saw herself and the extent to which she was willing to persevere with tasks seemed to massively change as she got to the point where by the end of the year, she just thought, oh, this works for me. This works for my learning. It's not to show um, Mr. X or Mrs. Y. It was just for her. And it just really seemed to change something about her learning. So yeah, I think there are issues related to praise and in particular issues related to the seeking of praise or trying to get children to seek praise. But having said that, I do think the idea that it's, you know, wholly negative and should be avoided is obviously not, um, not to be countenanced. I particularly like what Neil said about this idea of you make it kind of rare, you make it something that you've got to earn, it's got to be a bit special. And then, yeah, I think then it has a value. I think when it's, you know, it's, it's like currency, you can, you can devalue it by um, using it too much. I think like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to Pep's book again, because I think like, and I'm going to quote him directly here, because I think this just sums up beautifully what we've, what we've been talking about. And I apologize for maybe Kieran hijacking the discussion a little bit here and taking it off and so But I do believe that this is part, big part of feedback. You know, praise is a big part of what, what, what we do in primary schools, right? And so, and I don't think there's a lot of conversation around it that I've been quite privy to, really. And that I'm quite interested in, Neil, I know you saying there, really interested to see you take us a bit deeper, like, you know, about... Um, but he says, and I'll quote, to maximize expectancy, we must help our pupils understand that failure can be changed and success can be sustained. We must help them develop accurate attribution. And it just sums up everything everyone was saying there. And like he, he gives three ways to, to achieve that, um, stabilizing the environment. So like reducing the external factors, Chris, reducing that child going to see the Blooming other teacher with the book. Do you know what I mean? Re redu re reducing those external factors. So removing that in a sense. Um, assigning attributions. So regularly pointing out um, sort of causes of success and failure. Um, and, and, but, but then drawing it back to effort and saying, well, can you, like you and you're talking, see how the effort here has caused this. So making it very explicit to them that that is the case, that is what it is. And finally, Neil, you were talking about spotlight, spot, he says spotlighting improvement. Again, looking back at progress over time, you know, and, and seeing that proficiency is malleable. So again, where you've gone, right, go and do those, you've got three wrong and oh, they've got three right, is spotlighting it. So it, you've perfectly exemplified the three sort of points that he said about for um, achieving sort of accurate attribution, which I, I don't know, I was just reading that the, the other night and I thought that fit quite well with feedback. So. It's a beautiful little book that, isn't it? I literally love it. I can't, I have read that book about four times already. Like I'm like, there's notes all over it. I'm like, oh. But it's making it so, isn't it? It's, it's getting it to be the lived experience in the culture in school as well, which is is the hard bit, isn't it? You know, that's the bit, is the implementation of it is the, always the second point. I'll throw in a little curveball, and that is if you, I'm a big believer that marking is very different to feedback, but marking can be helpful, but marking is more useful for 
the learner to do rather than the actual teacher to do. There seems to be a bit of a misconception that immediate feedback is superior, but for some things, research literature seems to suggest that delaying it could be, um, could, could be better. And so my thoughts on that would be perhaps, you know, spelling tests, um, simple maths, multiple choice quizzes, whatever it may be, when you do those, set aside five or 10 minutes at the end of the day and then mark them there. So you've got a little bit of a natural spacing effect between when the kids have actually done them and to then actually when they come to mark it, because then they're just seeing that information twice over two kind of sessions, for what of a better word. And so actually research suggests that they, that might be more beneficial than just saying, right, okay, we're going to mark it all kind of straight away now. So I would say, give it a whirl, give it a go. Are, are you testing that out, Neil, in your class now? Uh, not yet, because the kids aren't quite where I want them to be with everything right now. And we're still kind of, you know, settling in and everything like that. But certainly after the half term, it's going to be something I'll be quite interested in, um, in doing. Excellent, because that could be quite good timing, because if I ask you how it went in the last chat before season three, then teachers will have a week or a weekend to think about whether or not it's something they want to invest their time in developing in 2021, 22. So that, that, that's perfect. You know, our own little case study. It sounds like I have to now write this down so I don't forget and I've committed myself here to actually doing this so that'll be good for little fun Why that's not? a rookie error that is a rookie that's error you don't commit to actually doing anything <laughs> well don't worry there's a video and, a, and an audio recording too so <laughs> you don't need You'll to write it down. <laughs> thinking about what neil said there it's just triggered something that it reminds me it's from this same kid actually the one that took their book from class to class is that she um we did not quite spelling tests, this sort of thing, but I remember one time we were doing some maths bits and pieces and I just wanted the kids to mark it for me to save me a bit of time. And this wasn't an intentional strategy. This was just the nature of the beast that they did it. And then after half term, we came back to it and I just read out the answers, talked about where they'd gone wrong and they went through it. And usually this is a kid that would just fly off the handle if they got something wrong, tantrums, I mean, she was amazing, but she was hard work. After this half term, after this big old gap, none of that emotion was there. She, like the frustration and the hard work that she put into it was, had just died out. And so that when I gave this bit of feedback relating to um, this math test effectively, she was just ready to take it on board. It's like, oh, I should have done that, should I? It was like she wasn't, it, uh, she was still invested in it. But that that potential for frustration had just dissipated. I don't know whether that's potentially one of the reasons maybe why this spacing effect, if you want to call it that, with regards to feedback might um, have a bit of benefit. Maybe it allows children to distance themselves from the work a little bit so they can just reflect on it in a little bit more, in a slightly more emotion-free manner. Yeah, potentially. I'm looking through... Um the notes that I've got at this particular bit of it. And it just kind of like one of the things that I've um, written down was that um, I say it just gives time for those pupils to forget that they got the answer wrong. And so as I say, I think that kind of links in quite nicely because they haven't just found out that they got the answer wrong. They've had that time to forget about it effectively. So when they come back to it later on, they're like, oh, well, you know, I got that wrong, but that was an hour, two hours ago. So what we're moving on. So. Yeah, I think it's quite an interesting little um, little idea. And um, I don't want to make this about kind of what I've got, but my notes are very much from the blog that um, I wrote, Kieran. So I'll put those in the show notes. That can go in the show notes for people who want to have a look at this. Please do. It's a, it's a cracking blog, you know, and one that everyone should read. Yeah, last, last tiny thing. Su su super practical little thing. And maybe this is just a bugbear of mine and it absolutely directly relates to feedback. You know, when you're giving kids feedback on something like a quiz or a test, or you're just going through answers and you get some kids in the room that start going, yes, when they've got something right, do not let that happen. Immediately, day one, when you start the year, nope, not having that, because the way that that treads on the children who have just got something wrong, it seems harmless. It is not harmless. 
that absolutely crushes every child who's just got something wrong. So I know it seems like a really petty, tiny thing. Don't let that happen in your classroom. I think you're spot, absolutely spot on it. And it goes back to that ego, uh, ego involvement again, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? In, in terms of children, the, the peer factor going on there, you know, it's a massive, massive thing. Something that I've done this year and started at the end of last year, really in this year. And it's sort of based on this idea of, I think Colin Foster was talking about it um, with um, children when they're getting feedback from quizzes or, you know, and I do it at the start when we're doing some retrieval practice is we tend to do it in maths is they'll answer their question. They will then rate themselves out of five, one to five with how confident they are that they've got it right or, or wrong. Five being really confident that, they, that they've got it right. And one being like, they haven't got a clue. They can't do naught because we we sort of gamified it a little bit um, so that if they get it right and, and they do five out of five, they get five points. If they've gone five out of five and they get it wrong, they lose five points. And they sort of over the four questions in the, in the retrieval at the start, it's their own thing. It's their effort. It's their score. They don't share their score, and I'm very hot on them not sharing scores. It is their own personal, and they try and hit their own personal targets. So as they go along, trying sort of to tap into the hypercorrection effect a little bit here that they are, you know, really banking on being right. And then when they're not, oh, you know, it's that kind of five points gone. Um, they love it. They literally really enjoy the gaming element of it. And it switched retrieval practice for me into this thing where we then decide as a group when they hit a certain amount of points that they have a running total at the top of their, of their page, that that means something. So there's some sort of reward or, you know, we decided, I know that is a little bit extrinsic kind of um, motivation factors going on there. However, I think in the grander scheme of that, I've seen some, some good things. I think I should probably try and track some data on it to see whether it so I've, I've just signed myself up now, like Neil, <laughs> into, into some sort of action research project for, for next season. But yeah, it seems it, like uh, the whole time I've been doing, I haven't been doing that long, really the end of last year into this year. Um, yeah, it's been quite a nice response, really, for that. And it, and it came from Colin Foster's work and listening to Dylan William about, as well about how children will game things. So if you can tap into that and use it in a way which is then positive and... Uh, really tries to elicit what they gen how confident then it's fascinating when you walk around and you see those five out of fives confidence and you know they're wrong you know and you can see the faces where you go and this is the answer for this and like chris says you don't want to elicit the old yes you know you you you, you try and put that out but you can see in their face oh you know that's knocked me for six like i genuinely thought that was right um but i'll need to see whether uh, what i'll need to do is some careful planning on whether then they get that sort of question wrong or write it again, because that is the that ultimately would be the long game. For now, I've put it into practice. It's, you know, it's the, maybe that's useful for, for, for people to you know have a, have a go at. It, it reminds me of um, the confidence weighted multiple choice questions. I mm. almost if you're using that format, you could almost turn that into a game. You know, it's interesting you say that the you don't have a zero. I'm pretty sure it was Robert Bjork and someone else i think it was little they weren't sure as far as i can remember about the the placement of the don't know because they have a don't know right in the middle and they I, I think they said further research into whether or not that's actually a good thing or not was necessary that's almost where they left it you know for season two of multiple choice confidence with multiple choice questions yes yeah, so that's that's really interesting i think probably the last thing to say then is that the four quarters feedback that is sort of mentioned in what does this look like in the classroom looks like a model that's worthy of exploration you know and I think it looks at who's doing the, who's giving the feedback because I think that could really help teachers both with workload and with focus and their attention yeah so if, if anyone has you know who's listening has tried it out or has embedded it you know give us a shout you know shout out on twitter and um, because that's a conversation I think really worth having so I think moving on slightly, are there any examples of ineffective or less effective practice that we might want to avoid when it comes to feedback? I think when it becomes a managerial expectation slash show 
for because you know your books are going to get looked at at the end of the week or at the end of the month, whatever it may be. And so you just have to kind of throw all these kind of weird and wonderful things that you're expected to do. Like, say, if like, um, heaven forbid, a senior leader should flick through a book and, you know, the purple polishing pen hasn't come out, for example, then it's like, oh, you know, how have you been given that feedback? Because, you know, they haven't, these kids haven't been using their purple polishing pen where, you know, we need to be realistic here that wielding a purple pen isn't going to make any difference to the actual learning itself it's you can give plenty of feedback without the kids actually having to you know get this purple pen out they can cross it off with a pencil perfectly fine you know in my personal opinion stop being lazy and kind of putting those kind of silly proxies on your teachers because all it does is waste time so I think looking at it from that side of it a plea then to some senior leaders out there you know don't kind of you know trivialize this i think the more you try to put straight jackets around how feedback should be given i think actually the less effective this feedback gets because the reason you put that straight jacket on is just so that you can potentially you know go around with uh perhaps it happens in some schools with a clipboard and you go in right do i see evidence of that feedback you can being given in you know this way that you know we've agreed and I'm not convinced that kind of straight jacketing teachers like that actually um, you know produces meaningful gains for students so I kind of want to take maybe that, you know, that slightly different approach perhaps to that question um, that you said Kieran. I'd like to expand on um, that or say the next thing that uh, perhaps I think we'd all agree on um, by again another little anecdote a few years back I was watching Dragon's Den on television and someone had invented a machine for <laughs> teachers where they could speak into a device and it would record what they had said and then print it onto a sticker immediately so that sticker could then be put into a book and the fact that someone thought that that was an invention that schools needed tells you everything I think you need to know about the value of written feedback just 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 say it to the kids so i think you know regardless of whether or not you do written feedback or not i think generally speaking i think any feedback that becomes unnecessarily time consuming is obviously a no no we've talked on this podcast so many times about how important time is as a teacher's commodity and how rare it is and i think it's fair to say that there are teachers around the country right now who are spending between five and 10 hours a week, every week on marking. Yeah, I think that's pretty intolerable when you think of the other things they could be doing with that time, not just in their own life, but um, in terms of developing themselves as professionals. In terms of feedback, I know this is the other side of the coin of concise, but saying too much, trying to get too much across, one point is all you need. I think another aspect of ineffective feedback is when the mode of feedback or the number of people you're feeding back to um, isn't matched to the mode. So if everyone in the room has made the same error, stand in front of the whole room and describe that error, or if 60% of the class have as well, fantastic, do that. But if there's one child in the room that needs a bit of support because they're the one person that's made this error and you can give that feedback, that's obviously not something that you need to speak to the whole room about. Obviously this takes a bit of professional judgment because it isn't usually as clear cut as one person or everyone, but thinking carefully about whether this is something you can talk to three kids about or whether this is something you need to talk to the whole class about um, is something worth doing. I mean, in fact, this might be one of those rare occasions where perhaps, you know what, it's only gonna take me 20 seconds to write this in a book. I'll remember that I've done, I'll remember to do it if I do it now and it's just one kid, then why not? I think um, it's easy to end up with like a blanket ban on um, marking, um, which is probably almost as counterproductive as the idea of saying you have to do this much and you have to do it that way. Thinking about just, I know we've mentioned him so much, so it's becoming a bit of a theme, but I'm going to say it as well. I think it was Dylan William who said that marking was one of the most expensive PR campaigns in public spending history or something along those lines when you calculate the amount of time that teachers spend on it and how much they are paid for that time. Um, it is um, crazy. 
I would also add anything, any part of your feedback system that requires teachers to spend lots of time at a photocopier and then at a streamer, be it your way of doing peer feedback or any of these other things, is probably a no-no. If photocopying is involved, find a way to do it without the photocopying, not just because it's a waste of paper, but also, again, it's a waste of time and it can become quite an, a burdensome and demoralizing administrative job for a lot of teachers. Yeah, if in doubt, make it a conversation. Definitely no photocopying. What I was going to say, uh, Chris, was go, I'm going to jump onto the side of the fence a little bit now in a sense of lots of people shift into whole class feedback models. Great. Yeah. You've just touched on something that I think is problematic in that model. I like the model. I advocate the model. And I think it can be done extremely well. Uh, went to see Claire Seeley's school doing it. Fantastic. Very, very smart. Very clever. Took a lot away from that. What I will say is when you have that and you are looking for themes, like you said, the, the modality then, the, the, how much we're looking for you, what are we drawing out and drilling down on? Because ultimately, again, a thing to avoid in, in uh, feedback, we're on things that we don't want to do. We don't want to just mark work and then there'd be no response in the instruction, you know, in terms of what happens next. Because ultimately that's why we do it. That's what feedback's for so that we can then amend instruction and what have you. So where teachers have moved to, or schools have moved to whole class models, whole class feedback models, and I've seen this firsthand, where there are teachers who are less confident at drawing out the themes because this subject knowledge isn't there. And because it's actually quite hard at times to look at 30 books and go, here is four themes that have come out of these, you know, and we've all seen those lovely sheets that have gone around Twitter and all the other, you know, and everywhere else with the boxes on to focus on things, which are great to, you know, to guide thinking. And I know there was lots of debate around whether you actually need those or you just need a blank sheet of paper to write things down on. Whatever you choose, the fact remains that if your teachers aren't secure in subject knowledge and aren't able to really carefully, diagnostically and surgically pull out what it is that, that needs to, as a commonality, as a theme, be focused on, you get what Chris is saying, you get those pitfalls then. So I think I would, where schools are moving towards that to help teachers to balance workload, let's be extra cautious that they are supported with CPD, that they are supported with modeled, you know, helped team, done it in a team, showed, right, yeah, and, and actually have that, that's the bit you want to talk to, to sort of uh, teachers about. You know, it's not like Neil said about picking up and looking for purple stuff. Be forensic on that process. Go into and speak to those teachers and go, sorry, so let me just look at this book. So why, why is this still coming up as a theme every week? Like, is there a reason for that? Have you addressed that? You know, because that's more meaningful in the instruction process than, than uh, that. So I would say, yeah, maybe maybe be mindful of that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Lloyd, because I certainly know it's very easy, I think, when you go to a whole class feedback model of then teachers, some teachers, thinking that, well, that means that I don't have to look through the books at all, which is obviously, you know, not the case. You need to be there. You still need to read those the work that children produce, you might be able to get through some of them during the lesson and provide live feedback. Absolutely do that. Um, but at the end of the, at, literally at the end of the day, you still need to take those books in and glance. And as you say, to find those commonalities. And I think, you know, a potential thing that leaders do need to look out for is that some teachers don't assume that you can just then not look at work at all. And then just, you know, provide any kind of feedback and just say and that's why I think when you're starting it out I think those whole class feedback forms are useful so you're thinking about habits and getting into those habit changes I think for the first couple of terms that you're doing it I would absolutely say that those feedback forms do need to be done just so that those habits are starting to form and then once they're kind of there and it's up and running then you can as a senior leadership, you can decide then whether you take them away or not, or whether you say, use them if you want to, or don't. But obviously, you know, there's still going to be that accountability there for those teachers if they're not using them to make sure that that feedback is actually, um, you know, receptive to what's actually happening in your classroom. And you're not just picking out, oh, well, 
Um, I was doing column addition with carrying over just in the tens, um, in the ones and tens. So I'm just going to throw some random question roughly to do with that in the hope that that somehow sticks and acts as feedback for the rest of the class. That's not um, particularly effective either. I love what Lloyd said about the idea of that needing to be something that's trained, that that needs to be part of CPD. Just quickly add, I think a really great way to do that would be to say, you know, here are 10 books on a table in a hall once we can all gather together and be back together as schools to doing CPD all in the same room. 10 books on lots of different tables and say, okay, look at those 10 books. What would be the, the two things or the one thing even that you would pick out from that to feed back to all of them? What's the commonality? What's the thing that's the highest priority for all of them? And is there one thing maybe that you'd feed back to just one child? And then you do that around the room, each, each group having a look at all of the books, and then you bring that together and say, okay, so what feedback would you give? I think that would be fantastic um, or really useful CPD, not just on how to give whole class feedback. I think it'd be really great CPD on you know what what good look, what good writing looks like and how you can support children in their writing generally i've just written that down because <laughs> that's happening <laughs> but yeah but like again you know go back to what matt swain says you practice it with the staff first before you do it with the children and before you try it out on the children you know practice it with your staff before you roll something like that out that'd be a nice thing when i know some you know some, some people will be listening have rolled it out and if it is it is but it's nice isn't it to think have some deliberate practice, actually. So I, I was actually going to use, because it was something Chris mentions all the time, your one, Neil, about um, making sure we look at the look at the books. Um, so I think I'll probably shift to something on a larger scale, because I think where we stand now with the inspection framework, and correct me if I'm wrong, schools will be held to account for the systems they have articulated in their policies. That's where we are. I think we don't know enough for certain about feedback for us to consider it part of any inspection framework at all. You know, we talk about being evidence informed. We talk about our best bets. You know, people like Nick Rose talking about we have some bets, you know, things like things that have been replicated 11, 12 times over, you know, decades we should be focusing our attention when we hold schools to account on those things which will have, which we know will have the greatest impact. You know, we've had a massive conversation here and I think all of it really, really useful. But, can, but going right back to what Chris said at the start, can we hand on heart say that we know for certain if we do any of these things, it's actually going to make a difference to our pupils. And yet we, we're holding our schools to a standard that we're not necessarily 100% certain we can actually trust. And so I think if there's one thing to avoid, it would be on a policy level, avoid measuring schools against things where the evidence base isn't is nowhere near robust enough. Perhaps I, I'm not I'm not convinced anyone who can make that kind of decision will be listening. But I think if we are to be truly evidence informed, then we need to listen to what the evidence is telling us. And as far as I can see, things like metacognition things like feedback just don't have the evidence base to inform our practice securely enough. And so, so that, that's where, that's what I would avoid, but I can't. <laughs> so I think rounding off, what's the most important thing to know about feedback in practice? If we try and keep these to one sentence um, each. That it's about cognition, not emotion. I'm leaving it to Neil and then I'm going to just reword his. <laughs> I'm just gonna go with it's it's really hard to get it right. And you and as I say, you just don't know actually if you are getting it right. And I don't think there's anyone who can tell you whether you are getting it right in the sense of it's actually having a long-term impact on the learning of the students that are in front of you. The most important thing about feedback is that you need to think about opportunity cost. It's obviously something that can be valuable, but you need to express what you want to communicate in the most concise and time efficient way possible. Brilliant. Um, and I think I, I would go back to Neil's definition, bringing about a change in the learner. You know, so let's go full circle. Like you say, the, the day 
that I realized that was it was a big day in my practice. You know, I can almost uh, I've made every mistake in the book, you know, as a leader and as a teacher and um, when it comes to feedback, but that was a that was a turning point. And so I think absolutely fantastic episode, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you all about feedback. Um, and I'm pretty sure we could go even further, you know, in future. You know, so thank you very much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. And all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.